Welcome to the podcast for Sunday, May 7th, 2017. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. One of the many reasons I loved traveling up uh, to visit Grandma and Grandpa White when I was a child was because of their swing set. They had an epic swing set. Just one single swing in my grandparents' backyard of uh, Livingston, Montana. The seat was wooden. There were these huge iron pipes that, when I was a kid, seemed to stretch all the way up to the clouds. And uh, I could get so high uh, when I was swinging on that. In fact, it was right next to the, the garage, and my grandpa planned it out so that even at the furthest back, I wasn't hitting, but just missing and coming up the roof of the garage. It was an amazing swing set. I loved that feeling of the air rushing through my hair and through my arms and my legs. And uh, boy, it was so freeing and, and pardon the uh, pun, so uplifting to go out and be on that swing set. I loved it. And I wonder if maybe that's why when I was a kid, I had such an affinity with Spider-Man. I mean, flying is okay, right, if you're going to be Superman, but man, to be able to swing from place to place, I just thought that would be amazing. Welcome to the second week in a new sermon series entitled Secret Identity, Finding God's Fingerprints in Superheroes. Now, some of you, thank you, thank you for the applause, Sebastian. Some of you, though, may not be as excited as Sebastian, and you might be thinking, seriously, Pastor Jim, superheroes, like, how are you possibly going to be able to fit a spiritually relevant and uplifting message with uh, Spider-Man? Well, I invite you to just hold your decision until the very end, and we'll see if we can get somewhere uh, together. The idea of this series has been on my heart for quite some time now. Our, our society is inundated with superheroes. They're, they're everywhere. And I believe as people of faith that if we have eyes to see and ears to hear, we can find signs of God's kingdom all around us, especially in areas we wouldn't think to look like superheroes. Spider-Man first appeared on the pages of Amazing Fantasy number 15, August of 1962. And from the get-go, it was clear that he was not going to be a typical superhero. In his book, Marvelous Myths, Marvel Superheroes and Everyday Faith, author and Bright Divinity School professor Russell W. Dalton has a wonderful summary of Spider-Man's origin. I'm going to be borrowing much of his language uh, in the next few minutes from Spidey's origin, but showing you panels from that very first episode, that edition of Amazing Fantasy 15. On the first page of the book, known as a splash page of a comic, writer Stan Lee and artist Steve Ditko managed to blow away many of the conventions of comic book superheroes. In the background of the scene, looking small and impotent, we see young teenage Peter Parker. He's standing apart from the crowd. He's uh, slump-shouldered. He's got a sad look on his face. He's clearly a nerd, scrawny, wearing glasses, holding several school books. But in contrast, in the foreground, looking larger and more powerful, are a number of the popular high school kids. They're laughing and teasing Peter. One of the boys suggests they invite Peter to come to the dance at school. Another says, that bookworm wouldn't know a cha-cha from a waltz. A girl mockingly says, Peter Parker, he's Midtown High's only professional wallflower. And then adding to the drama of the page, Peter's shadow reveals the creepy outline of a giant spider a spider web, and the powerful silhouette of Spider-Man. Being the science nerd that he is, Peter attends an exhibit at 
on radioactivity at a science hall. And during the experiment, a tiny spider hangs down from its web and accidentally falls into the pathway of a radioactive ray. The illustration shows the spider biting Peter as the narration reads, accidentally absorbing a fantastic amount of radioactivity, the dying insect in sudden shock bites the nearest living thing at that split second before life ebbs from its radioactive body. Well, at first, Peter feels a bit woozy, but then he soon discovers that he has super strength, great agility, the ability to climb on walls, and a unique spider sense that warns him of danger, like when a car is about to hit him. As a normal teenager, though, Peter doesn't immediately vow to use his forces to fight evil. No, his first reaction, how can I make a little money on this, right? So he gets to the idea of becoming a professional wrestler and a television star. He puts on this makeshift costume. He wins a wrestling match. He gets some cash. And he then uses his science background to create these shooters uh, that allow him to shoot webbing from his wrists. And then he creates his famous Spider-Man costume and then does tricks on television to gain fame and to collect a paycheck. Well, after one of these TV performances, a thief comes running through the studio. A policeman has been chasing him, and Peter, still in costume, just stands there and lets the thief get away. The policeman is furious. What's wrong with you, mister? All you had to do was trip him or hold him up for just a minute. Sorry, pal, says Peter. That's your job. I'm through being pushed around by anyone. From now on, I just look out for number one, and that's me, he says. Well, the policeman says, I ought to run you in. And Peter just walks away saying, save your breath, buddy. I've got things to do. A few days later, Peter finds out, uh, he comes home, discover a robber has killed his Uncle Ben. He's been living with his Aunt May and Uncle Ben ever since he was a child. Well, the robber is holed up in an abandoned warehouse. And so Peter once again dons his Spider-Man costume and he goes after the murderer. He climbs into the warehouse climbs up the walls, uses his webbing to disarm the criminal, and then his super strength to knock him out cold. But it's only then does he see that the criminal is the very thief that he had let go by just a few days before. Now, in most comic books, uh, Russell Dalton says, we'd expect the hero after his first successful mission to smile triumphantly or at least have a look of grim satisfaction on his face. But on the last page of the story... After he has caught the criminal, Peter takes off his mask and reveals that he is crying. He's distraught. It's my fault, he says, all my fault. If only I had stopped him when I could have, but I didn't, and now Uncle Ben is dead. Comic book writer and historian Roy Thomas notes, up to this point, superheroes didn't cry. But Spider-Man sobs because he's really only Peter Parker. He's just a kid with problems. Then on the final page of the last, uh, the final panel of the last page of the story, there appears some of the most well-known words in the history of comic books. And a lean, silent figure slowly fades into the gathering darkness, aware at, la- at, at least that in this world, with great power, there must also come great responsibility. And that becomes Spider-Man's credo throughout the, the history of his Uh, his comic book and movie uh, career. Comic book historian and critic Peter Sanderson writes this, By establishing this dramatic contrast between the lead character's triumphs in battle and his sufferings in the inner life, Spider-Man set the pattern not only for the many Marvel series that followed, 
but also for the entire superhero adventure genre as it evolved at many publishing companies over the next 30 years right through the present day. Now, I love the fact that Peter Parker is just an ordinary teen that's suddenly given these great powers and has to steward them for the good of all. I think the disciples could relate to that. The Gospels are clear that Jesus didn't choose his 12 closest followers in any of the conventional ways that rabbis would have done back in the day. Jesus wasn't looking for the best of the best. He didn't pursue the Hebrew scholar standouts like other rabbis did. He just called ordinary, average, not really that special folk to be his followers. And I don't say that as any disrespect to the disciples either. I think that Jesus saw more in them than they saw in themselves. Many of them were just average people like fishermen. They were not the spiritual elite, not by a long shot. And yet Jesus called them and chose to invest his life in them, taught them, trained them, challenged them, inspired them, and they ended up, by the power of the Holy Spirit, changing the world. It's amazing if you look at those ordinary 12 people that started the church and got everything going. That's our call. That's our challenge today as well. You see, the Christian movement over the centuries has been built largely not by those of us like Pastor Angela and myself who are ordained and set apart for the work of the ministry. No. I mean, we have a part to play, of course, but the majority of the work, especially within the Methodist movement, has been by you folks, by the people in the pews, regular down-to-earth folks who have just done what God's calling them to do in their lives and in the community. And all it takes is someone like Peter Parker or the disciples of Jesus to remind us of the power of God that's available. The Holy Spirit that was there in the early church is available to each one of us. The same Spirit. And with great power becomes great responsibility. A few months after Spider-Man's appearance in Amazing Fantasy 15, sales figures came in and they knew they had a hit on their hands. In fact, Uh, Spider-Man got his very own comic book. Uh, It was called The Amazing Spider-Man. The first issue was March 1963. And in the first 50 issues of The Amazing Spider-Man, Peter faces a laundry list of problems that most heroes never faced in the pages of their comic books. He has money problems, breaks his arm, has to wear a sling, catches a 24-hour virus, goes to the psychiatric, uh, psychiatrist because he's becoming convinced that he's losing his mind, catches a cold, worries about being drafted into the armed forces and sent to Vietnam, he sprains his arm, he has a fever that causes him to lose a battle, and he's constantly worried about grades in high school, his love life, and his elderly Aunt May's health. Like, those are not the things you find in the pages of most comic books. And for a while, almost every uh, issue of the amazing uh, adventures of Spider-Man ended with Peter alone in his room talking to himself about how difficult his life had become. He became the king of pity parties. He was so good at wallowing in despair of all the problems that were happening in his life. Some people questioned, how could a superhero have so many problems? Well, one one of the people that didn't question was the creator of Spider-Man himself, Stan Lee. Here's a very short, about 12-second clip of an interview that Stan Lee gave talking about this very issue. I never really thought that I was giving Peter too many problems. My problem was I couldn't think of enough problems for him. Because the more problems a hero has, more problems any main character in a story has, I think, the more interesting the story is. 
One of the most difficult uh, times in Peter Parker's life came on the night that his girlfriend, Gwen Stacy, died. It was recorded in The Amazing Spider-Man 121 from June 1973. He had met Gwen, who was a fellow uh, science student during his first year of college. B.J. Oropesa, professor at Azusa Pacific University here in Southern California, uh, wrote, his, uh, wrote in his book, The Gospel According to Superheroes, Religion and Popular Culture, that Gwen was Peter Parker's first great love and one of the few good things in his life. Oropesa writes this, Gwen functions as Peter's redeemer in the series. She accepts Peter and defends him against accusations from his class peers, and she loves him unconditionally despite his problems, his lack of money, and his abnormal behavior. In the 2002 film Spider-Man, the Green Goblin uh, kidnaps Peter Parker's girlfriend, Mary Jane Watson, and takes her to the top of a bridge where Spider-Man then has to come in and rescue her. But in the original comic version, the Green Goblin kidnaps Gwen Stacy, takes her to that bridge where she falls to her death. Much more tragic ending than the movie did. Gwen's death was one of the most shocking and controversial events in comic book history. For comic book fans, it marked the end of a more innocent time in the industry. Russell W. Dalton comments this, Gwen Stacy's death underscores the fact that even superheroes like Spider-Man are only human. Their powers are not a magical cure-all that solves every problem. Even with all their power and determination, they cannot always save the day. Which kind of leads us into that age-old question that Christians and, and people of faith have been asking for centuries, right? Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people, right? Nothing that they deserve, these, all these problems are happening. What is up with that? Now, the standard biblical uh, answer uh, over the years has been, well, because sometimes good people do bad things, right? If you are sick, if your cow gets stolen, if you lost your job, if your servant ran away, if your child was born with a disability, if you contracted a dreaded disease, obviously there is some sin in your life that you haven't confessed, and God is just using that to remind you that you must return to him with all of your heart. That was what conventional wisdom said. The book of Job in the Old Testament is a response to that conventional wisdom. The very first verse of the book of Job sets out Job's character. There was once a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Storyteller even mentions that Job would offer prayers on behalf of his adult children in case they sinned against God in their hearts. Not anything they ever did out in public, but even if they had thoughts or desires that were not in tune with God's will, he prayed that God would forgive them. Well, God even brags to Satan about Job a few verses later. Verse 8, the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Well, God allows Satan to afflict him with numerous diseases and losses, and through it all, Job knows that it's nothing he did. There was nothing he did out of line that would cause uh, all these calamities. But his so-called friends keep telling him, dude, you must not be thinking deep enough. You, you, you must have offended God in some way. Nobody is perfect. Confess your sin, and things will change. And, but Job knows, I didn't do anything wrong. And at the very end of the book, he gets to talk to God face to face. It's a wonderful interaction. The bottom line is this. God tells Job, you know what? Sometimes you just don't know why things happen. 
Things happen. You are not able to understand it. End of story. When Jesus and his disciples meet a man who is blind since birth, they ask him, Rabbi, who sinned? Was it this man or his parents that he was born blind? Because remember, this is the conventional wisdom, right? But Jesus' response is very clear. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. Now, we might want to ask why God couldn't reveal his works in some other way than having this child born blind, but that's beside the point. The point is sometimes things just happen in life. Sometimes bad things happen to good people, period. And we have to figure out how we're going to deal with it, which is what Peter Parker had to learn. In The Amazing Spider-Man number 50 from 1967, Things finally come to a head for Peter Parker. Spider-Man has been the subject of scathing negative editorials in the papers, and at the same time, he discovers that while he's been off fighting crime, uh, his Aunt May's health has been deteriorating, his grades have been declining, he can't even find time to go to a party with his girlfriend Gwen. Finally, he has had enough. Being Spider-Man has brought me nothing but unhappiness, he says, and he reasons there's only one thing left to do. He unceremoniously dumps his Spider-Man costume into a garbage can in a back alleyway and walks away. Russell W. Dalton comments, it's the ultimate image of the renunciation of a secret life. Now, here's how the 2004 Hollywood film Spider-Man 2 handled this iconic scene from Spider-Man's history. If we go back to the original comic from 1967, Peter Parker is hounded by his conscience the rest of that issue. From the moment he drops his costume in the garbage can, he realizes how many needy people will suffer if crime is allowed to run rampant in his neighborhood. And he makes a commitment to continue his crusade no matter how great a personal sacrifice it may be to him. The Apostle Paul understood this in his letter to the church in Galatia. He knew that the Galatians and countless other Christians would have to face many hard times. Just life in general is hard, but especially for people of faith in that day and time as they were just getting a new movement started. He writes this, Bear one another's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. So let us not grow weary in doing what is right, for we will reap at harvest time if we do not give up. So then whenever we have an opportunity, let us work for the good of all, and especially for those of the family of faith. As Christians, we're called, challenged, invited to be a part of other people's lives, to be invested in the lives of those around us, to help bear their burdens. I mean, over and over I've heard people say, well, the reason I don't tell people about sicknesses or hospitalizations or personal problems is because I don't want to burden other people with what's happening in my life, right? You've heard that before? But Paul's saying that's exactly what we're supposed to do because it's not a burden if it's people who love you and know you and care about you, especially within the community of faith. We have to learn what Peter Parker learned, that we need to have endurance and perseverance when it comes to living out our faith because there are so many people in need, even right here in our own communities. Let us not grow weary in doing what is right. Let us work for the good of all whenever we have an opportunity. In their commentary on the book of Galatians, scholars Swords and uh, Percival remark that the words usually translated here, if we do not give up, probably meant something more negative than just simply giving up. It had the connotation of meaning failure. It's one thing to give up, but it's another thing to fail at what God has called us to do. God has called us to give ourselves away in love and service to the world. Let us not fail at that challenge. 
That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus, the one who came and gave his life away so that we might have life in all its abundance. Paul isn't saying that the Galatian church has to simply watch out for not getting too tired doing what you're supposed to do. No, he's saying be careful not to neglect the very responsibilities that God has given you as a church. In the Amazing Spider-Man issue 200 from January of 1980, Peter Parker has finally come around to recognize the importance of not growing weary and doing what is right. And at the end of the issue, he reflects on the many times that he's wanted to give up and quit being Spider-Man over the years. He recognizes that his spider power has increased not only his own strength, but his passion to justice in doing what is right in the community around him. And then he says this, At last... I realize I'm the luckiest guy in the whole wide wonderful world. Most people wish they could help their fellow man, but this old web-slinger has the power to do it. Somehow, somewhere, someone with far greater power than I managed to put it all together. And I swear to be worthy and grateful for the rest of my life. I see that as a wonderful acknowledgement that God had gifted him with those specific abilities. God has given each of us certain abilities. It may not be what Peter Parker has, but we all have things that we can do for the glory of God. So let us not grow weary in doing what is right, for we will reap at harvest time if we do not give up. So then whenever we have an opportunity, let us work for the good of all. Thanks be to God for Paul's words to the church in Galatia, for the witness that Peter Parker and Spider-Man gives us to the challenge of being disciples like those 12 ordinary men that Jesus called so long ago. May all of us be committed to doing what is right like Jesus taught us. For with great power comes great responsibility. Amen.